Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is science communicator, Dr. Kiki Sanford. Kiki, welcome. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's nice to have you back on the show. This is appearance number six. I can't believe it. It is so nice. much fun to have you on the show. We really have I fun. I really enjoy out. getting to come talk. Yeah. Yeah. I have, so a, much fun. I have a nice list of topics that you've covered it this week in science in the last few months that really interested me. And uh, I wanted to chat with you about it. But for those listeners who are new to the podcast or new to your appearance, let me introduce you. You are a neurophysiologist with a PhD from the University of California. Early in your career, you obtained your bachelor's degree in conservation biology, a field that covers animals, their environment, and how humans impact them. Today, you're a very popular science communicator and creator of This Week in Science, the podcast and radio show. This is your sixth appearance on Background Mode. Wow. And I'm very happy to be here getting to talk about science. Oh, yes. my goodness. Yes. So I have a, a list of subjects from the recent This Week in Science shows that interested me. So let's get into it. Let's have some fun and talk about stuff. In science, cool. the first yeah. one on the list is speaking brains. Using neural networks and vocoder technology, trained to recognize brain patterns related to speech, scientists were able to create a speech interface. Tell me about how that works. What's what's happening there? Is it is it a, is it something where you can figure out how the brain generates speech and then simulate that audibly, or what? How does that work? So the interesting thing about this study is they used uh, kind of off-the-shelf technologies. They didn't uh, develop, well, I mean, they're kind of developing their own use of neural networks to clean up the simulated speech that they're creating. Um, but the idea is to be able to create some kind of a brain-computer interface that can understand the signals in the brain that correlate with speaking and thus be used for individuals who are trapped in their bodies and unable to communicate, but maybe have perfect brain activity otherwise. Oh, cool. So and this so, is maybe with some sort of speech impediment or an inability to talk. They can wire yes. you up and figure out what your brain is yeah. trying to say and then connect that to a, spe- a microphone, a speaker. And a speaker, can- yeah. Exactly. And um, to do this, we have to understand what the electrical activity looks like in the brain uh, that corresponds to certain vocal sounds. And they had epileptic patients during open brain surgery listen to different words, different modes of speech, and then recorded from their speech centers, from their from those vocal production centers in their brain, and then took those computer, the electrical activity, and tried to match it back up to the original recordings. Cool. I wonder if that could work yeah. the other way. I wonder if you could generate signals within the brain and have the brain of the person hear. Of course, that's a different mechanism in the brain, right? Uh, yeah, it would be a little bit different, but the idea would be, I mean, it's it's a similar idea. If you can uh, elicit electrical activity in the brain, then, yeah, you could make people hear voices, right? 
<laughs> and so there's this there there is this interesting aspect of neuroscience where you're looking at the brain and the brain has its own activity like the brain does its its thing on its own without the rest of the world it's got its own signaling but then there's sensory input from the world that gets led into the brain that the brain then has to match up against what it has going on and kind of play a game of, of, uh, of, of, ma- of matching and say, does this match with my view? Does it not? Do I need this information? Do I discard this information? And the brain figures out what's important and what isn't and puts it together with the activity that it already has going on to create new output into the world. Sounds like it could be an element of a scary sci-fi movie. So you have this <laughs> blaster yeah. that's going through the wall, and on the other side, the person hears his voices in their heads, Get out now! <laughs> right? Well, there was, a, there was something that I just saw. Somebody brought my, to my attention. It was on, uh, I think, on the Boing Boing website last week of, of researchers who are using very focused lasers to stimulate... Um, basically hearing in like line of sight hearing in people various distances away. So it's not actually stimulating signals in the brain, but with laser technology, that's not laser light. That's like it's burning, but laser that has, um, has vocal frequencies encoded into it that it from a distance away, these lasers can make, you can hear. Amazing. Amazing. You can hear sounds that are sent to you over lasers. Hmm. And so I'm like, I'm thinking that you know this is Department of Defense level stuff. Yeah, I was just thinking military applications, long range communications yeah. that are secure, encrypted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You have a spy that maybe you know you've got a sniper up on line of sight up on top of a building. You have a spy doing whatever they're doing, and the sniper can say, "Hey, watch out to your left," and give people right. a heads up as to what's going on. <laughs> Right. All right. So let's move on. Number two, rising sea levels. You know, there's a lot of discussion about that because people tend to think that if it's not rising in their area, it's not rising anywhere. And the second element is is that um, it's rising. It's going to rise at an exponential rate. Tell me about Mm -hmm. the article and then I have some thoughts for you, too. Yeah, so there's actually a number of articles that have come out uh, related to this recently. And the data all show that the rising sea levels around the globe are not homogenous. It's not the same everywhere. And in fact, um, areas where a lot of the melting is occurring, because it's actually still cold in those places like Mm -hmm. the Antarctic and Greenland, um, it's the water isn't expanding. And a part of part of sea level rise is due to something called thermal expansion, which is the heat that gets into the water and the molecules actually kind of puff up and spread out from each other and the water expands and that creates a actual physical rise that we can measure. Um, And so it's expected that sea levels like in Antarctica and Greenland, the the areas there, even though it's melting there, the sea level's not going to go up substantially at first in those places, but it'll start going up everywhere else. And again, some areas are going to be more affected than others with uh, different amounts of rise. And it's all the, the paper that I think you're referring to is one that Justin brought to the show where researchers showed that the way that we've been estimating 
how the sea level is rising against our coastlines is actually too conservative and it's incorrect and that there is a there's a better method to measure it and it's uh basically we are we're in trouble because it suggests that there's been more sea level rise and will be more sea level rise overall into the future wasn't there a small island in the hawaiian chain that was flooded recently yeah the hurricane the, the hurricane that came through just did it, it, it didn't just flood it yeah it, it blew it away it distributed the plants and the sand and the volcanic materials that the island was built from and mm. in addition to the water rising it just took it away let me tell you what i've discovered lately because i've had some climate scientists on the show dr Catherine hayhoe and oh, she's great yeah yeah she's great and the issue came up about Antarctic versus Arctic water. Mm-hmm. Ice that floats in the Arctic when it melts doesn't raise the water level because nope. because it's floating ice. And when the ice melts, the amount of water that's displaced is the same as the volume that was displaced before. But yep. when you've got ice that's on land, like on Greenland, Alaska, and the Antarctic, that was formerly not in the water. That's extra water. And so when those places melt, glaciers melt, and those three places, among others, then the water level does rise. And the other thing about Arctic Arctic water is is that when you've got a polar cap with ice, you've got a nice high albedo, which is the reflection, the the amount of light that's reflected back into space. And when the ice melts... You've got seawater that doesn't have the same high albedo, and so the planet absorbs more. And that probably contributes to an exponential effect. I'm Absolutely, guessing. and it and it contributes to that thermal expansion that I was talking about. So, right, um, right the albedo contributes to cooling. It keeps it, our albedo actually keeps us cool, but uh, it's like having a little bit of sunblock. <laughs> but right. the... Uh, the darker water, like you said, it's a darker color and it absorbs heat from the sun. So it's very complex. You've got to understand the physics oh. of water and sunlight. You've got to measure the rising coastline sea levels at yeah, lots of and, different and there, places. And there are many different factors as well as, uh, you know, they've recently found that there is a big, a big melting area underneath the ice in the Antarctic. And it has the potential to lead to some major glacial calving, which is it, the glaciers falling into the water and melting into the water. Um, that, uh, that could be pretty disastrous in terms of the amount of water that gets added to the oceans. Uh, and in addition, a paper just came out uh, suggesting that it's not that this isn't the end of it. It's not just the sea level because we have this warmer melted water coming and mixing with the oceans. It will change ocean circulation currents and the change in ocean circulation currents will change weather patterns and thus the just distribution of water around the world. And so weather events are going to change and it's expected Mm -hmm. that we've been talking about these extreme weather events occurring and it's expected that more extreme and random weather occurrences are to come. Well, the other thing that Dr. Hayho told me, if I remember her correctly, I hope I got this right, is that this extra water doesn't all go into the ocean and cause sea level rise. A lot of it goes into the atmosphere. And then you get these strong rainstorms mm-hmm. that get dumped on land and get flooding on land. So 
the water makes its presence felt not just in sea level rises, but in bad rain and snowstorms. Yeah, and uh, water vapor in the atmosphere is also a greenhouse gas, a, a greenhouse warming contributor. So uh, the more evaporation there is, the more water vapor there is uh, to contribute to these storms and also to contribute to warming. Although there are, you know, different factors. You talk about the albedo of the snow or the ice in the oceans. There's also albedo from clouds at various levels of the atmosphere. And those clouds come from water vapor. And so the it's, it's very, very complex. And, but we're learning so much thanks to scientists like Catherine Hayhoe. You know, what's also interesting to me is is that a few years ago, uh, maybe a decade ago, the meme, the thought was, you know, we're pumping too much CO2 into the atmosphere. We got to stop doing it. So let's stop doing it. But we're not stopping. And it's no. so it's continuing. And there's an article, I think it's the January Scientific American, or if I remember right, that talks about, okay, now we've got to start thinking about extracting the CO2 from the atmosphere. A trillion tons of CO2 every year. And the, the article goes into great length about technical mechanisms for extracting the CO2 out of the atmosphere in order to offset what we're putting into it. And that's a, that's a new thing. We, we hadn't actually thought about planetary engineering at that scale before. Yeah, I mean, research... Uh engineers and researchers have been trying to figure out ways that we can you know create clean coal or clean uh natural gas processing where there are technologies added to the processing lines that do before it ends up in the atmosphere these scrubbers um and that techno technology has been advancing for a, a long time however it's still not to the point where we want it to be it's not to the to the point where it can deal with these trillions of tons of carbon dioxide being emitted into the atmosphere. And so, yeah, some of these ideas are really, really big and very interesting related to finding ways to grab the carbon dioxide and bind it to rock beneath the earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, into the calcium carbonate. <laughs> um one yeah, thing that so might help is I saw an article just the other day uh, that I mentioned in, I think I mentioned it in Particle Debris, is that there are emerging AI techniques to help solve the problem of nuclear fusion. Mm. If you're going to think about extracting a trillion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere, you're going to have to have a lot of energy at your disposal. And these scientists that accompany are trying to use artificial intelligence techniques in concert with Google to try to get their nuclear fusion working well enough to generate energy. And so AI might be the solution to boundless fusion power without pollution, and boundless fusion power might be the answer to the energy we need to extract the CO2. So AI might save the planet. <laughs> My fingers are crossed. I mean, it, it, there are in the aspects of pattern, uh, certain aspects of information processing and, uh, you know, we're seeing AI beat out human pattern recognition in some cases. And if AI can deal with these massive data sets and uh, these huge problems better than we can, yes, put them to it. And oh my goodness, I've been following fusion for years. And if we can... Find a way to really get more energy out than we put in. We it, 
it's going to change everything. It and, is. Um, you know, it, is. it might come along just in time when we need I know, it. Yeah, I'm hoping. I mean, can we, can somebody do it in the next 10 to 15 years? That's what we need. It's been 10 to 15 <laughs> years away for the last 60 years, but uh, I, know, I think we're exactly. getting there. <laughs> so were flat panel TVs. They were 10 years away for 10 years in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And when we finally, Sometimes, you we know, finally it, it's, a, it's a, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like a threshold event in technology, right? Where something happens that pushes the technology over an edge, where mm. manufacturing becomes cheaper, where processes become more efficient, where it actually becomes feasible to put it into practice. And we're we're just not there yet with fusion. And uh, I keep waiting. I keep waiting. Okay, so we've beat that one to death. Before we move on to the new <laughs> subject, I think it's, we should take a commercial break now. Get it out of the way, and then we'll come back and talk about some other cool stuff. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with science communicator Dr. Kiki Sanford. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Marcellaro with the Mac Observer. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where our data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing our email could put private data at risk. As I've explained before, you're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other companies who want to profit from your information. That's why I'm taking back my privacy using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet, your iPad. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Also, ExpressVPN is rated the number one service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history or your, to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is also the answer. So protect yourself Online today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash BGM. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com forward slash BGM for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash BGM to learn more. And thanks, ExpressVPN, for being our sponsor. Thank you. I'm chatting with Dr. Kiki Sanford about all things science. So the next thing on the list that intrigued me greatly was baby talk. Babies who are exposed to two languages at an early age show certain developmental capabilities that don't exist in people who never learn a second language at an early age. I'm fascinated by that. I learned German at age 14, and it stuck with me. Oh, my my vocabulary is gone, but my sense of the language is still there many, many, many years later, and I've always found that interesting. So tell me me how that study went. Yeah, I, I found this this study very fascinating as well because for years, you know, you hear you hear people say, "Oh, teach teach kids a language while they're young because their mm-hmm. brain is still plastic and they can learn multiple languages." But then there's also the apparent benefit to learning multiple languages when you're young to um, future success in life. You know, staying in school, having a, a successful job, that kind of thing as you as you grow and age. Um, and this is attributed also to learning musical instruments. And 
the question is, if this is something, is it that the brain is benefited by this experience and so becomes basically a stronger, better, faster brain because of learning another language when you're young or learning an instrument? Or is it that you're, the, these people's brains were already great and that's why they're good at learning an instrument or learning multiple languages? And so this causal cause effect kind of thing has never really been worked out. But this study looked at these babies in the houses of spoke a couple of languages. And what they found was that the the babies' brains, when they were listening to these languages, were the attentional centers were more stimulated. What is than the babies attentional that, system? So the attentional system really underlies all of our higher cognitive functions. It allows me to pay attention to what you're saying and the questions you're asking to be able to formulate an answer and respond to you in a way that makes sense. It allows us to sit and read an article and gain Mm. information. It underlies our, our learning and our memory and, um, you know, underlies our ability to function really in everyday life. And so to have three highly plastic or highly easily influenced period of neural development, this particular portion of the brain and possibly strengthened that it the learning multiple languages a baby having to attend to you said we you said yes what does this mean i think these are similar trying to figure out what these words mean and how they relate to each other and in context to the world around them um, it's forcing the baby to pay more attention the attentional system is thus strengthened and in the brain there is this the in neuroscience there's this concept of use it or lose it and so this kind of or the other one is uh neurons that fire together wire together and so the the idea i'm coming coming away from this study with is that uh that multiple languages and probably they didn't do music but probably learning a musical instrument as well stimulates this attentional system and makes it more capable of the cognitive demands that come with development. Interesting. I wonder if it feeds into the consciousness part of the brain. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. <laughs> but it makes I, me wonder. It really started getting at a mechanism of how this changes the developing brain and makes it, you know more able to attend to things throughout life. There's a lot of stuff we don't understand about the brain. I think we're just kind of nibbling around the edges of a mechanism we don't fully understand. It's sort of like a black box. And we're seeing an effect. We don't understand the mechanism underneath that's causing this ability. But it's a gateway into further understanding. I can't wait to hear more about this. Me too. I love this stuff. (laughs) All right, the next subject I want to ask you about is water on Mars. As soon as I saw that, my head lit up and my brain went on fire because I just finished watching this National Geographic series called Mars, season number two. It's a six-part series about the colony on Mars, an international 
expedition, internationally funded organization that put a colony on Mars. And they got into competition with some commercial entities who sent their own spacecraft to Mars to do commercial development. And there's this constant struggle. Did you see that series? I haven't, but it sounds fascinating. It's a constant struggle between the scientists who want to preserve any life signs or any water because it might have mm. molecules or bacteria or life signs. And the commercial interests who want to mine the planet. And when they find water, they want to use it for industrial purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this polite friction between the two organizations. And it raised the specter that um, it may not be financially possible for any nation or any collection of nations to preserve Mars as a scientific entity like the Antarctic in the face of a boundless human ambition and capitalism. And will we finally cave to the idea that Mars is a, is a resource to be exploited? Raised all sorts of interesting issues. Anyway, you referenced an article about underground water being found on Mars. Tell me more. Yeah, so, I mean, th- I mean that's basically the, the story, is that uh, doing radar, uh, radar analysis of just below the surface of Mars, uh, one of the orbiters has discovered evidence of what is thought to be a lake of water underneath the surface. Uh, and because of the way that the you know, the vibrations, these magnetic vibrations that the orbiter is uh, recording and send, sending back to Earth, because of the way that they bounced around under there, they really think it's water and not other, other compounds, although there is a chance that, they're, that, you know, they're, that they've measured it incorrectly and it could be some other liquid substance. But um, the, the idea that there could be the surface suggests that there may be life you know if water's there maybe something and it's liquid and not ice maybe little bacteria little microbes are floating around in it and continue to live then that ties into your your question of you know what do we do is this the red mars mars or red mars blue mars green mars Situation: How much do we preserve, and how much do we? Those commercial ideas. Yeah, yeah. If some if some industrialists or other people decide that Mars is a good place to move to, in order to protect the human species and have a second survivable, self sustaining human civilization on Mars, that's going to really get in the way of preserving Mars as a scientific site. And we hadn't thought about that in the past. You know, in the Apollo days and NASA history, we've always thought that that NASA or Russian or Chinese scientists would go to Mars and study it like like we do in the Antarctic, and it would be preserved for all time. But now the specter is coming up. Well, how are we going to control that? How are we going to get everybody to agree on that? Right. Everybody just needs to read that Kim Stanley Robinson series and see this video, this this video series that you've <laughs> suggested, so that we all have a starting point. <laughs> right. Right. You know, based in science fiction, but very applicable to the human endeavor and and authorities of different groups of people. Okay. So the next subject I wanted to ask you about is intelligence is sexy. 
No, really. Science says it is. <laughs> but this At is least scientists. The, this scientists want you to think it's sexy. No. Well, the, the article <laughs> refers to birds, correct? Yes, it does. Well, tell me about it. And I have some thoughts about this, too. I have thoughts about everything you talk about. So you go first. Yeah, so this study was uh, brought by, to, to twist by Blair for her segment of the show, Blair's Animal Corner. And, you know, it, the study gets at the idea of what does a female budgie, budgerigar, think is sexy? Um, to acquire food through strength or the ability to acquire food through uh, intelligence and know-how. And so they created a testing paradigm in which a female bird watched a male bird <laughs> and it was either a very brute strength kind of situation or the puzzle solving situation. And um, in their testing, they had, they had a control group as well to where the food was just available so that they could kind of get rid of the idea of the female bird just likes the bird that has food right? The one who can provide. Um, but in their tests, they found that the, the female budgies, they liked this, the smarter puzzle-solving males more often than the stronger ones. Interesting. Let me ask your opinion about something, about humans. As, as we've gone from uh, agrarian to industrial society to uh, computer society, there's less and less emphasis on physical strength. It used to be that, that and if I want, to, I want to be careful and put this correctly, the emphasis was on a strong male to provide a strong, safe, secure nesting environment. But in this computer age, nowadays you have to have somebody who's able to you know, maintain the security of your home Wi-Fi network and navigate the very internet-oriented society with Uber and technology and our Macintoshes and our iPads. And so I wonder if there is a shift socially towards more social acceptance. And this has got a long history, starting with Mr. Spock on Star Trek and, and uh, people wrestling with an emergent success of intelligence uh, as something cool. And we see it in sci-fi movies as well. So I wonder if there isn't the same evolution amongst humans. What do you think? It is. I th yeah, I think it's a very interesting subject. And uh, I think one thing that we do know from animal behavior studies is that uh, the we, we always have the situation of the choosy female. And so the female is the one who is uh, protecting the resources of her eggs, and so is uh, always going to be discriminating on one basis or another. And I think, I think what's interesting is that we, we not only do we have um, physical evolution of traits, we also have cultural evolution of traits. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and what's happening, like what you're talking about, is a cultural shift. Where yes, there are still strong males providing, but in our societies that are moving more and more to the coasts and to big cities and where uh, people are choosing urban environments that and jobs that have to do more and more often with technology. Um, and that's where the jobs are. Uh, right. We, I, I do think there is a cultural evolution that's going on that is going to influence the 
that biological preference. Nicely said. Nicely said. Thank you. (laughs) You're better at that than I am. All right. So we have time for one more subject. And I'm going to pick... Awesome. I'm going to pick immune system replacement. I'm fascinated by that. Um, You wrote uh, about chemotherapy and stem cell replacement. Uh, Wiping out a a muscular sclerosis. Is that right? System where the nerves are being attacked and wiping out a patient's immune system and starting over. Sounds scary and exciting and adventurous and technical all at the same time. Fill us in It is. Uh, yeah, and this, this is something, uh, it, it's like a reboot for the immune system of the body. And the idea is, you know, in cancer, you can, uh, chemotherapy kills all the dividing cells in the body. Uh, there's more specific forms of chemotherapy but but the uh, main idea is that if something's dividing it's probably a cancer cell and so get rid of it um researchers have taken this idea and are starting to apply it to autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis in which the body's kind of gone haywire because of one trigger or another and has decided that its own nervous system is a problem and, mm-hmm. and is attacking it. And so uh, in this situation, they take stem cells out of the body and kind of save them. And then, uh, and then undergo chemotherapy to knock, tell that autoimmune system to knock it off. You need to stop. And it, the immune system ability to do anything is virtually destroyed with the chemotherapy. And then after the fact, those stem cells are put back into the body where that trigger is no longer there. They are taking those stem cells and genetically modifying them so that they are less likely to respond to a particular trigger. Interesting. Um, yeah, and when they're finding that these patients who are getting these stem cell transplants are very well. Um, they've had some, I think a couple of, of you know, one, I think they've had one or two deaths so far in the studies, uh, but they were for very specific reasons that aren't to the, uh, the population at large. Um, but so far, it's it's looking very promising. I mean, it's early early days yet in this therapy, but there are already clinics knowing that it has worked very well with some people. There are clinics that are starting to make this therapy available to people. Cool, cool. Well, that's that's a, quite a discussion we had. We've run out of time. I had so many more <laughs> things to ask you about. As usual, there's usually more on my list than we get a chance to talk to, but we've hit the highlights. So thank you for coming yeah, back uh, for the sixth time and sharing your thoughts with me and having uh, and geeking out on, on tech and science. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me back again. I really enjoy it's getting to so come back fun. and dig into things. Yeah, yeah. It's so much fun to have you on the show. <laughs> Tell the listeners how they can contact you. Right. So if anyone is interested in the Twist podcast, you can find us at twist.org t-w-i-s.org we're also on youtube and facebook as this week in science you can look for this week in science in all the podcasty places and you can find me on twitter at dr kiki excellent excellent and we'll have as usual all this in the show notes so folks i hope you enjoyed the discussion with dr kiki stanford 
You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.